Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning on this final day of June. 30 days has September, April, June, and November. Yep, last day of June. Last day of June. Um, So where in the word are you today? And we ask that question here frequently on the program because if we're not in the word of God, it doesn't really matter what else we're reading or taking in, absorbing watching, listening to, um, we are people of the word and we are needful of soaking and saturating our lives with the word of God. And so where in the word are you today? Let's spend a minute in Philippians chapter four, verse eight, just one verse this morning. Paul says to his fellow Christians in Philippi, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What are you thinking about this morning? What's on your mind? How are you thinking about what you're thinking about? And does the Word of God influence not only what you're thinking about, but how you're thinking about what you're thinking about? So what's on your mind this morning? What's your mind set? Where is your mind set? Are you looking for discerning of, focused on elevating and celebrating that which is true and honorable, just, noble, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy? Are these the things you're thinking about? That's what Paul says to his fellow Christians, to us as fellow Christians, whatever is true. Now, discerning what is true requires that we know the difference between truth and lies. Then we can distinguish between them. And that we would think about that which is true. We would focus on that. We would be students of the truth. And thinking about, focusing on, elevating and celebrating that which is honorable or just or noble requires that we know and can distinguish between that which is honorable from that which is disgraceful or between that which is just and that which is unjust, that which is noble and that which is not. Thinking about dwelling on pointing out, celebrating and elevating that which is pure and lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy requires that we are able to discern the difference between these character qualities And not only their opposites, but everything that is less than or a shadow of these admirable characteristics. It's not just the truth. It's the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help us God. It's it's not just that we can tell the difference between, you know, an outright lie. But can we 
tell the difference between the truth and anything less than the truth. Anything less than the truth. And are we thinking about the truth or are we thinking about half-truths? Are we thinking about that which is honorable, just, noble, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy, or anything that is just slightly less than? So let me commend this verse to you today, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Brothers and sisters, this morning, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about them. Dwell on them. Allow them to be your mindset. Point them out. Celebrate them. Talk about these things today. Let's take God at his word today, and let's be people who think about these things. And in so doing, advance the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world on this day. All right, first up this morning, George Barna. He and I are talking about America's seismic generational shift in worldview. That's up next on Mornings with Carmen. Joining us again today, George Barna. We're going to talk about the latest releases from the American Worldview Inventory 2021. Just as a reminder, uh, the American Worldview Inventory is an annual survey that evaluates the worldview of the U.S. adult population. Um, began as an annual tracking study in 2020. This assessment is based on lots of worldview-related questions um, that are asked to people across the country. So, George Barna, welcome back. Carmen, always good to be with you. So just as a reminder to our audience, this is the, the first time really that there has been a deep dive into the biblical and competing worldviews um, of folks across the nation. So let's talk, um, maybe let's talk first about the generational shift in worldview uh, that you guys have discovered. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a pattern that you see happening here. You, you go back in time, the builders most traditionally... Christian generation that we had, and those are people who currently are 75 or older. Then you have baby boomers who came along after them, currently mid-50s to mid-70s. They started out as rebellious, realized in their late 20s, early 30s, yeah, that ain't working. And so we saw boomers actually then follow in the footsteps of builders and embrace more traditional Christian views. Then you had Gen X come along, those who are currently in their mid-30s to mid-50s, and that's a group that was on the fence. They didn't know which way to go. They felt invisible because there were, was a relatively small number of them, uh, probably about 15 million fewer of them than you had of boomers, and so they, they already had issues with identity and feeling whether or not they were understood and, and appreciated. And so they were considering being more rebellious, never really quite made a transition either way. And then along come the millennials, who currently are 18 to 36 years of age. And that's a group that from the beginning has said, no, we're marching to the beat of our own drummer. And so we're not going to buy into traditions, uh, whether they're religious or cultural. We're not going to embrace the normal customs. We're going to try to build things the way that we think they should be. 
And so it's been a generation at odds with most older Americans in significant ways, really since they, they reached their teenage years. And now as we look at their worldview, what we find is this is a group that really is moving in a different direction. Uh, the least interest in a biblical worldview of any generation since we've been measuring these things. And if you look at the entire generation, only 4% have a biblical worldview, but the latter half of that generation, only 2% have a biblical worldview. And when you look at the specific beliefs, you can see just how different they are. Well, and I want to look at those specific beliefs, but I want to um, just pause for a moment and acknowledge again that we are talking about adults. So I think that there are a lot of folks when they hear the word millennial, they're like, ah, well, I don't really need to worry about that because, you know, that's teenagers. No, no. These are adults and they're now raising the next generation. Um, they These are the people who are getting married and having babies. These are the people who are going to be reproducing their own worldview in another generation. So just remind us again, when we're talking about millennials, what's sort of the age bracket we're thinking of? Yeah, we're looking at people who right now are about 18 years of age to 36 years of age. Okay. And as you point out, I mean, it's a, a critical group because, number one, they are our primary parenting generation. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, these are the new teachers coming into public schools. Mm -hmm. And when you look at, at what happens with new teachers coming in, they're the ones bringing the energy. They're the ones bringing the new ideas. They're the ones that are kind of changing the systems because older teachers often get comfortable. And this isn't a put down. It's just an observation of what tends to happen. And then when you look at millennials also, you find that many of them now uh, at the upper age group of that generation are coming into positions of authority and power in many institutions, including churches. So now you've got pastors in their mid-30s who are coming in, and they're making some pretty significant changes in churches across the country, theologically, as well as in terms of the routines and traditions in those congregations. So again, I'm talking with George Barna. We are talking about um, a series of releases that are coming out of the American Worldview Inventory 2021. You can find them at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. George, let's talk about some specifics related to the millennials. What um, what do they believe? And again, we recognize, you know, you've talked to a millennial, you've talked to one millennial, but let's take the the group um, as a as a collective whole. What might we anticipate that a millennial person would believe? Well, their ideas are very different. I mean, for instance, they are far more likely to believe that success has nothing to do with obedience to God, far more likely to believe that premarital sex, uh, apart from marriage, is a moral activity, that having an abortion uh, because of some kind of economic or emotional discomfort is morally acceptable. Mo the group most likely to believe in things like reincarnation, uh, the, that, that God does not exist, the least likely to believe in the creation story that comes out of the scriptures, the least likely to believe that human beings were created by God in his image, and require someone, i.e. Jesus Christ, to redeem them. Why? Because they also don't believe in concepts such as original sin. So a lot of core beliefs, and there are others, but a lot of core beliefs that most Americans 
we're taught to believe and still believe, although that belief is waning across generations, with the millennials, there's been a clear break. So let's um, let's spend a minute talking about the kind of world that millennials are seeking, because I think that when we talk about maybe how we could prepare ourselves as believers to interact with and engage millennials, there's some helpful things on this list. Yeah, you know, it's, it's fascinating because when you put it all together, we, we start out with millennials believing that government, big government, a lot of government, an intrusive government is a really good thing. And so they want to see government expanded in terms of its reach, authority, its power. Uh, they're not at all perturbed about how much money government might spend, not even really perturbed, apparently, about government debt. Hmm. Why? Because they believe that uh, you know public policies and programs made by people who really understand what's going on, not the general public, is the way to go. Now, of course, you hear that and you think, wait a minute, that's a Marxist philosophy. This mm-hmm. is a generation that's very comfortable with Marxism. They believe a lot of the things that Marxism teaches, i.e. there is no God. You know, marriage is not a positive thing for society. Government by the elites is the best thing that could happen to a culture. So they're moving in that direction. And toward that end, again, taking kind of a Marxist flavor, they're very comfortable with things like violence in the streets in order to get what they think is right. They believe in a sense of personal sovereignty, meaning that nobody can tell them right from wrong. Nobody can tell them that they are doing something immoral. Nobody can tell them that they shouldn't be acting or thinking in a particular way. And so, you know, it's going to create a lot of political tensions, a lot of interpersonal tensions, and, and they're all right with that. One of the odd things about this generation is that they love the idea of being seen as tolerant people. But the reality is when you talk to them, they will describe just how intolerant they are. For instance, they're the generation that is most likely by quite a margin to believe in getting even with other people who do things they don't like or things they think are detrimental to their own well-being. They are the individuals who believe that other people should be treated differently according to each situation. There are no absolute moral truths. They're the people who believe in censoring viewpoints different from their own, no matter what it takes to do that. They're the people who will tell us that the only individuals they're going to always respect are those who hold the same views and beliefs as they do. So this is a radically different approach to life. It's, it's certainly not a biblical approach to life. But again, you have to remember that this is a group that does not believe that the Bible contains truth or that it should be a guideline for people's lives. And that's why they, you know, give up on things like the family unit, uh, Christian sexual morality, uh, the, the importance of and the appeal of having children, all these kinds of things. And you can bet that in the future, as they take more and more power, what's going to happen is that they will be shutting down Christian churches and taking away a lot of the benefits that Christian churches have had as they've tried to serve the public. All right, we're going to take a very brief break. When we return, uh, George Barna and I are going to actually begin addressing that. What do these um, shifts in the U.S. religious uh, landscape in terms of the view of individuals, what kind of impact uh, is that having on long-term faith communities? You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. 
All right, let's pick up where we left off with George Barna. We are talking about the American Worldview Inventory. And um, let's focus now, George, on the national religious realignment in terms of the changes that you're observing in long-term faith communities. Yeah, you know, Carmen, there there are a number of things that that are going on here. You know, we, we could talk about some of the really significant changes taking place among Hispanic Americans. We can talk about the fastest growing faith groups in America. We could talk about uh, some of the nature of the decline in Christianity and and why the Christian faith is struggling in America and, uh, you know, what that's being replaced by. And the conclusion that you come to is that a lot of the assumptions that we have about what people think, how they choose to live, what they believe, and how that affects the way that America is going to uh, continue to move in the future and grow, those assumptions are no longer warranted. There are really significant changes happening. Well, and you've been tracking these changes for some time. I'm interested in uh, what you see as this quartet of faith-related measures um, and that you've been tracking since the 1970s. And there's a a pretty significant shift uh, taking place there. You want to talk about those? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I I track a lot of stuff, but often you, you look for combinations of factors that when you put them together, it gives you some real perspective. And one of those groups of factors that I put together frequently is looking at people's perceptions or beliefs in the existence of God, the role of the Bible, uh, the role of Christ, and people's worldview. So when we look at that, let me give you numbers comparing just 30 years ago, which sociologically speaking is not a long period of time, just three decades. And if we look, for instance, at the belief in the existence of God as the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe who still rules that universe today. Back in 1991, 30 years ago, 86% of Americans believed in God described that way. Today, it's less than half, down to 46%. That's astonishing. Isn't it? I I mean, mean, you go from something that's, you know, (laughs) just flirting with 90 to something that's flirting with 45. Yeah. Uh, you know, cutting anything in half across a large population like the United States is very, very unusual. And so it tells us that there are a lot of social dynamics at work here. That doesn't happen overnight just because there's lousy preaching. You know, I mean, that happens because there's a cultural assault on ways of thinking that have been ingrained in the nation's heart and soul for literally more than two centuries. And so now we we have to, I think, wake up and be more sensitive to, yeah, what's going on? What's causing these kinds of changes? What do we do about these things? If If we believe that this matters, we can't just sit back and say, huh, isn't that interesting? Well, yeah, it is, but it's interesting because of the dramatic implications of saying that the God of Israel does not exist. I think, George, one of the things we've talked about before, and you highlight again um, in this particular release, is the the growing number of people who have an interest in or belief in reincarnation. I just find that a particularly interesting, like, strange hope. Well, I think, Carmen, in some odd ways, it fits contemporary America. Because as I've learned over the last 40 years of doing research, Americans are not deep thinkers. We don't like to reflect on things. We like to do things. 
America became a great nation because it's a nation of people who want to go out and make things happen. We don't sit around and, and talk about Descartes and Kant and other great philosophers. We want to go out and get a job, produce something, get some money, spend it, you know, create a lifestyle, do all these kinds of things. That's important to us. That's partly where we get our identity. When you look at reincarnation, I think it kind of fits in that mold because the whole idea here is it's not one and done. It's uh, an issue where, okay, I gave it my best shot this time. I'm going to get to come back and do it again. And so it, it's kind of an active belief in your own future and your own potential. Now, from a Christian perspective, it's ludicrous. I mean, this is not how things work. But more and more individuals are being exposed to more and more Eastern mystical thought, and they're finding it comforting. And so you got, you know, more people doing a lot of the stuff, the yoga, the meditation, all of these kinds of things, which fit in with this approach to life. And so while most Americans, very few Americans, uh, most Americans don't buy into a, an Eastern mystical worldview in its entirety, because we tend to be syncretists where we pick and choose things from different worldviews, this is one of those things where an increasing number of people say, ah, that's kind of interesting. I like that. That makes me feel good. It gives me hope. Now, nothing can give you more hope than Jesus Christ, and yet a lot of people, 9% of Americans right now, believe that they're going to be reincarnated, and 4 out of 10 Americans believe that reincarnation is a very real possibility for themselves including one out of four individuals who have said that when they die, they know they're going to go to heaven only because they've confessed their sins and accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. We call those people born-again Christians. And yet one out of every four born-again Christians is kind of hedging their bet and saying, yeah, I think reincarnation is a real possibility. Some of them are thinking that for themselves. Some of them are thinking that for other people who haven't accepted Christ, but have this kind of wacky, universalistic, uh, broader idea about what happens after a person dies on earth. All right, it's because I've read the whole um, the release and your comments related to positive things that we could turn and do. Let me encourage our listeners to check out all that George Barna has said about this. You can find it at culturalresearchcenter.com. Um, and, you know, there are America is the new mission field. And so we're going to invite each and every listener into that. The good news of Jesus Christ holds up in the face of every generation and every uh, cultural shift, including this one. So we're going to put our faith and hope in him again. George, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, we're going to catch up with our friend Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. Headlines from Afghanistan, Iran, Bangladesh, Mozambique. That's all up next here on Mornings with Carmen. One of the great mistakes many parents make is not establishing a belief system when their kids are young. Such a system is crucial if your home is to operate effectively. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. A belief system includes a list of your convictions, a set of rules for how your family will function based on your beliefs, and consequences for breaking those rules. Such a system should provide you with a relational policy and procedure manual for your home. There's no better model, of course, than the precepts found in the Bible, and you must adopt biblical principles as your own. And if your kids are beyond adolescence, don't worry. It's never too late to start. 
Create an atmosphere in your home where relationships can flourish. Mark Gregston is devoted to helping parents of struggling teens. Find his small group curriculum online at parentingtodaysteens.org. To boldly go where no one has gone before. Joining me now, Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. You can find what we are talking about today at missionnews.org. Ruth, welcome back. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you. I hope you are well as well. I'm poking along. I had a pretty good weekend <laughs> for at the U.S. Masters Games, so I'm kind of just moving on to focusing on the next big national meet. All right. And you're a runner, Yes. I'm a sprinter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A sprinter. <clears throat> I'm a plotter, I think. I'm just plodding along. Okay. So, um, Ruth, let's um, let's talk about a story that I saw posted just this morning at Mission News, and that is uh, the story about foreign forces leaving Afghanistan and what the government is now doing. This is, um, I think, pretty fear-producing, frankly. Well, I mean, Afghanistan's no stranger to struggle. Uh, In most of their history, they've had some kind of struggle between an invasion or uh, insurgency or any of those kinds of things that the government has always been uh, at uh, at odds with. So between the Soviet invasion and then the Islamic factions that engaged in a holy war and the Taliban – um, there's really always been a high amount of of violence ongoing in the country. Um, there's been, I guess, kind of an ongoing power vacuum because the government has really struggled to overcome most of these uh, situations. And so when you look at when um, the Taliban basically took over Afghanistan and created the issues that uh, led up to 9-11 in, in the U.S., you know, you have a, a situation where um, the instability spilled out of its country's borders. Um, obviously, after the 9-11 attacks, the U.S. put boots on the ground in Afghanistan to try to quell the Taliban's presence. And eventually we claimed victory that the Taliban had actually fallen, um, but they never went away entirely. Their presence was always felt uh, in and out, in and around the uh, the Middle East and North Africa. And so as the U.S. leaves the uh, Afghanistan and especially leaves early, um, the Taliban is taking the opportunity to make their presence known yet again. So clashes have intensified uh, even as early as this week with attacks on checkpoints and other secured uh, parts of the district or previously secured parts of the district. And there are concerns that uh, the Taliban's advances are going to put Afghanistan right back where they were prior to 2001. Um, so there's a lot of fear that uh, Taliban is going to be taking over again. There's a lot of fear that all of the advances Afghanistan has made are going to be gone. Um, there really isn't going to be an awful lot of presence in terms of the U.S. and NATO left over once this withdrawal has been completed. And so there are concerns there. Um, believers have already been facing a lot of pressure. It, you know, it's kind of considered a sign of insanity for someone to leave the state religion of Islam and, and follow Christ. Um, there's, uh, no practical above ground church body that is safe, really. Not, it's not um, even really legal. 
right? Yeah. So church buildings yeah. aren't really a visible thing. There is an underground church, uh, and, and they face a lot of persecution because Afghanistan is one of those countries that we keep an eye on because they're on the top 50 in the, the world's worst places in which it is to be a Christian. Um, but the believers are there. And what they're asking us to do, according to our partners from Voice of the Martyrs, is they're asking us to pray, um, not just for safety, but uh, asking God that God would make seeing eyes blind so that anyone who's searching for these underground church members would not discover them. Pray for the hearts of the extremists so that somehow the love of Jesus would encounter, they, they would encounter the love of Jesus and have one of those Saul to Paul kind of experiences. Uh, Voice of the Martyrs Canada has a lot of really great ways that we can be praying into the situation um, there. And and, and he, they encourage us to remember that God continues to build his church uh, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, there are many people on the ground in Afghanistan for whom we need to be uh, praying, and we certainly need to be asking God to send the Holy Spirit in fresh ways. Um, dreams and visions seem to be uh, a way that uh, God is moving in places where, you know, frankly, Christians don't have an opportunity to share openly with one another. So praying in that way as well. All right, Ruth, let's take a pivot um, here and talk about Iran. Um, you have a piece posted at missionnews.org related to Iran as well. I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Shormoz, uh, I'm sorry, let me say that in, Dr. Hormoz Shariat with Iran Alive Ministries. And um, his story is well known for people who've been following what's been happening in Iran. And he had some very strong words about the latest election in, in Iran. Um, essentially, the, the election of Ibrahim Raisi uh, as the new president is not really any any surprise. Um, they, the, the ruling council, uh, the people who hold the power, kind of groomed him to take over this position and eventually are hoping to put him into the supreme leader's position. But the, what they were looking for was um, a brutal enforcer to take over at the moment when Iran's power regime uh, is teetering on the brink of illegitimacy. Um, I think what they're seeing is that people are extremely disillusioned with the way things were uh, in Iran, and they're afraid they're going to lose that power. So they're looking for somebody to really uh, strong arm people into place. And what you're looking at is probably a return to the Iran of the before pre-70s kind of revolution uh, in that mm. situation. So mm. it's going to be a difficult period. Uh, of adjustment for Iranians. For believers, they're already underground. They are already finding ways to live and share the hope of Jesus. Because, you know, you've heard this said many times that Iran, for its size, has the fastest growing body of Christ in the world. So somehow that the Holy Spirit is moving and people are praying into this and they're being creative. And uh, in spite of all of the efforts to block the, the satellite channels and uh, all of the broadcasts that are beaming the, the gospel into Iran, people are still finding it. And the gospel is finding its way into people's hearts. So the Holy Spirit's doing something mighty in spite of the fact that you have this, this person that's called the Butcher of Tehran leading the country now. So, you know, it, it's, it's just going to be a moment here where we can be praying, uh, continuously praying for the body of Christ there, that, that, that Iranians, uh, believers would 
have courage and that they would uh, be bold in their faith um, because this is going to be another testing time. Yeah, important uh, reminder that in in Iran, the Quran is uh, functions like as the constitution. And I, I think people need to be mindful of that. I mean, it, it is an Islamic state, and um, but it's, we need to recognize that. All right, um, Ruth, uh, we're going to take a very brief break. When we come back, let's talk about what's going on in Bangladesh. I am talking with Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. You can read everything we're talking about today and more at missionnews.org. Continuing my conversation with Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. You can check out what we're talking about today at missionnews.org. Ruth, this is a really interesting development in Bangladesh. Tell us what's going on there. Well, uh, they've just had an anniversary. Uh, June 9th, 1988 is considered a black day because each year uh, the religious minorities demonstrate on June 9th against the adoption of Islam as the state religion of Bangladesh. Um, Back in 1988, Bangladesh adopted the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, which established Islam as the state religion. And every year uh, when the minorities, religious minorities protest against it, they're asking the government to change that. Um, when you saw that this shift in in Bangladesh, you know, in declaring its independence, I think people were hoping that they were going to have more of a secular state because that's what was promised to them. And so this this using of the um, establishing Islam as the state religion felt a little bit like, uh, a bit of a betrayal because that's not what they were told uh, was going to happen. And since then, Bangladesh has really um, uh, become an area where it is very challenging to be a bully, a follower of Christ. Um, they face discrimination and and really a lot of outright persecution. Um, so there's there's been a number of times and a number of efforts where these groups are banding together to call for. Uh, I guess, a, a a real secularization of the Constitution, because even though it sounds like it, it's something that we wouldn't want to support, um, a government that supports a state religion uh, usually can be used against religious minorities, and it, it, never go, it never bodes well for freedom for everyone as a whole. Um, and, and it often adds to a lot of the chaos within a country. So they're just asking that we continue to pray with them. Our partners at FMI uh, have people on the ground that are asking for wisdom in when to join the protests and when to, uh, to stay silent and when to be, uh, you know, uh, obviously uh, outspoken in these situations. Um, so pray for grace and wisdom as well. Yeah, we don't often think about um, the conversations that we have here in the United States in terms of the relationship between, quote unquote, church and state in the same way that people in other countries around the world where they thought they had secular governments, where there would be a a freedom um, from uh, the the ways in which Islam asserts itself over all things um, in a nation when it reaches majority status. And so I think it's an important conversation for everyone to be paying attention to, um, particularly those who you know recognize, recognize that constitutionally formed people do have a right to change their own constitutions. So it's a, it's a super fascinating conversation. Let's pivot to Mozambique and, um, and what's going on there. This is so disturbing. This is just so disturbing. 
Well, you know, I think what is interesting is that what is happening in northern Mozambique has really gone beneath the radar for most people. Um, it's horrifying what is happening in the northern part of the country because what it what we're seeing here is the Islamic State basically repeating what happened in Iraq and Syria. So if you remember back when uh, when they just kind of stormed through and took over uh, the whole parts of the country and claimed that they were part of the caliphate, that's the same thing that's happening in Mozambique with the same kinds of tactics. So when you, you heard about people going door to door and being forced to either recite the Quran or be killed on the spot or um, the really grisly executions, the crucifixions, the ends being painted on the, the houses, that is what is happening in Mozambique and really not much is being said about this. There is a body of Christ in Mozambique, and they are crying out for um, help. They're crying out for support. They're crying out for us to be praying for them, because in this kind of a situation, um, it, it is really, you've got a target painted on your back. Um, and, and churches are being specifically attacked. Christians are being rooted out. Um, and and the, it, it is, like I said, if you remember what happened in Iraq and Syria, this is the picture we're seeing in northern Mozambique. So Voice of the Martyrs USA is asking us to continue to be praying for them, be praying for their comfort and their boldness, because in a situation like that, you don't want to be, I mean, you and I would look at it and, and wonder how bold would we be in their shoes? How uh, willing would we be to name the name of Christ if we knew that it would result in extreme pain or maybe seeing our family members hurt? Um, just put yourself in their shoes and pray the strength of, of faith that it needs to be uh, to be there to overcome these kinds of situations. Yeah, so just to highlight again for our listeners, um, what's happening in Mozambique, there are um, Islamic State actors who desire to set up a caliphate similar to uh, what ISIS established in Iraq and Syria. Um, and they are literally going door to door and they are asking the question, are you a Christian? If you're a Christian, then you're killed. Are you a Muslim? And if you're a Muslim, you need to sufficiently be able to quote Quranic verses or you will be killed. Um, and it is, it is, as Ruth has said, gone under the radar of any sort of media reporting. Um, and so we want to be lifting up not only an awareness of this, but, you know, pleading with God to to send forth the gospel in miraculous ways so that people would come uh, to know Christ and thereby live in the peace of Christ and be able to live peaceably with one another. Um, we've got time, Ruth, to talk about um, safe havens. What, what are we learning from our friends over at Wycliffe? Well, Wycliffe Associates has been working with a lot of the translators of a lot of the, the church networks in countries where uh, persecution is a serious issue, and you know they've they've equipped the, these these teams to be able to continue to be on the move should they face a situation like what we're seeing in Mozambique, uh, without totally disrupting the Bible translation projects. But I think uh, what they were realizing was that they needed to have a safe haven, a place where people could flock to and be protected in other in countries where it's uh, safer to be a Christian. Um, and if they can get to these safe havens, um, they will find a place of rest, find a place to recover and to continue the work of the Bible translations. Because, um, you know, 
we're looking at a situation where it's more and more um, risky to openly uh, be doing Christian work, to be openly involved with the translation of the body of Christ. So Wycliffe Associates has kind of started in um, putting together a network of these safe haven places. Uh, these are facilities that are in countries um, that are, like I said, safer for believers. They're functioning as a launch pad for the Bible translation projects in difficult areas, and they could potentially serve millions of people. Obviously, we can't tell you exactly where this is or uh, you know who's who's actually staffing it or anything like that, but they're asking us to continue to be praying about the uh, the, the translators who are actually on the run, who are trying to get to these safe havens uh, uh, at all. Uh, I, I, you know, I wanted to say safe haven safely, but um, you know that uh, in a situation where you're on the run, especially if you have a target, uh, that trip itself is fraught with danger. So even getting to the safe haven is its own challenge. So be praying for those teams. Uh, be praying for those who are um, feeling the weight of disruption uh, as they're trying to come back together um, with uh, just kind of recovering from the trauma that exists when you're you're forced to leave, um, when you're forced to uh, clear a space because the extremists have chased you out. Um, just pray that the word of God will continue to advance because that's the whole purpose of what Wycliffe does, uh, Wycliffe Associate does. They, they come behind a body of Christ with the intent of advancing God's word in, in languages that don't have it yet. Um, mm -hmm. And that's really what they're trying to do is they're trying to be providing a safe place to translate the Bible. It's so cool. All right. Um, you guys can check out that story at WycliffeAssociates.org. I've been talking with Ruth Kramer. You can read all of the Mission Network news at missionnews.org. Ruth, as always, thank you so much. You guys will be right back. All right. Uh, we've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Let's conclude this hour the same place we started which is to set our minds not only on things which are above, but actually focus our attention on that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, anything worthy of praise. Let us think about these things, dwell on these things, have a mindset that is set on the very mind of Christ, cultivating the mind of Christ on the matters of this day. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.